This morning I'd like to begin in the book of 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter 5 verses 5 and 6. The Apostle Peter is writing an epistle that he addresses to the elect according to the foreknowledge of God through sanctification of the Spirit and unto obedience and sprinkling the blood of Jesus Christ. So it's very clear that Peter is writing this letter, this epistle to the Lord's children, to the Lord's people. When he gets to this final chapter here, he gives some very important instructions to them. He says in verse 5, that the younger, the younger persons in the congregation, in the church, should be in subjection to the elder, that is, to the older ones. There should be a respect for that. But then he says that you all should have, or all should submit one to another. No matter who you are, young or old, brother or sister, you have a responsibility to submit yourself unto the others in the church. He says, for God resisted the proud, and he giveth grace to the humble, therefore clothe yourself with humility. Now humility is a wonderful thing. Humility is a beautiful thing. And he's given us a formula right here that if it followed, there will always be peace in the church. There will always be harmony in the church if we're all subject one to another. Now if we clothe ourselves with humility, and notice what he says. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Therefore, based upon what he's just said, he said, let us all, what? Humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Now, humility and pride are two opposites. You cannot be proud and humble at the same time. By nature, we are proud. We have to learn the importance of being humble. We have to know exactly how to go about being humble. Now, obviously, the unregenerated man, the natural man, he's not interested in humility. He's quite proud of his pride. You ever seen people like that? <laughs> they are proud of their pride. And that's the natural man. He enjoys being proud. But God resisted the proud. And I think about it like being stiff-armed. And I sure don't want to be stiff-armed of God. I do not want to be resisted by God. Now, if you go to James chapter 4 and verse 6, we find where James basically tells us the same thing. He says, for he giveth more grace. I love the way this verse starts. For he giveth more grace. That means you've been the recipient of grace prior to this. So he gives you more grace. For God resisted the proud, and he giveth grace to the humble. He says, resist the devil. This is telling you how you can do this. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Now, I want to be nigh to the Lord. To do that, I have to resist the devil. How to resist the devil? Well, by being clothed with humility, by humbling myself under the mighty hand of God. In the book of Proverbs 6 and 16, we find where Solomon lists six things that the Lord hates, and the seventh is an abomination in his sight. The first of these six things is a proud look. See, we're just proud by nature. Have you ever said things like, uh, come here, I want to show you my pride and joy? That means you've got some, some object. Maybe you just bought you a new sports car. Maybe you just bought you a new bass boat. And you say, come here, i got something to show, show you my pride and joy. You're just real proud of that thing. You know, you're happy about it. And then when you think you've really accomplished something, 
you know, maybe while the wife's out shopping, the husband gets very ambitious and energetic. He decides he's going to vacuum the floors. He decides he's going to dust the furniture and be sure the dishes are washed and dried and put up and everything. And so when the wife comes in, he's just beaming with pride. And he says, and she commends him about it. And he said, yeah, I'm right proud of myself. You ever said that? <laughs> I'm right proud of myself. Uh, it just comes out real easily, doesn't it? Because by nature, we have a problem with pride. Now, the Bible is filled with illustrations about this. King Nebuchadnezzar, for example, uh, his downfall was his pride. He walked out one day and he saw his great kingdom and he began to speak about how great it was and how, what he had accomplished. And before the words got out of his mouth good, God drove him from his throne. He drove him out to the field where he uh, ate grass like the beast of the field, his hair grew like bird feathers, his nails like bird claws. And there he remained until his understanding returned to him. And when it did, he made an outstanding statement. He said, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. But God works his will among the inhabitants of the earth and among all the army of heaven, and none can stay his hand or send him what doest thou. We see he was proud. God humbled him. God brought him down. Then when he came to his senses, God exalted him and raised him up. Now notice what it says in verse 6 of our text this morning. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and in due time he shall exalt you. There's an exaltation that's good if God's the one who's doing it, you see. That's why the Lord said, He that's abased shall be exalted, but his exalted shall be abased. In other words, the way up is down, the way down is up. And if you want to be up, you've got to first be down. So being clothed with humility is very important. The Lord's people have an apparel to put on and to wear that the wicked and evilest world know nothing of. In the 58th chapter of Isaiah, in the first verse, it says, Awake, awake, O Jerusalem, put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, O Judah. The Lord's people in that day had beautiful garments to put on. Garments of praise, garments of deliverance, garments they could wear in appreciation of the blessings of God in their life. He says, awake, awake. In fact, three times close together in those uh, verses in Isaiah 57, 58, he tells them to awake two different times. The Lord's people can go into a slumber. The Lord's people can go into a sleep and just neglect uh, appreciating the blessings of the Lord, you see. So we got beautiful garments that we're to put on, garments of service, garments of worship, just like the priest in the Old Testament day had specific garments they were to put on before they could minister in the tabernacle. So this morning, I'm sure that the ladies probably opened up their closet and went in there and said, I, I need a beautiful dress for today. And you took some time to find a dress that you wanted to wear today. And the brethren probably did likewise. They picked out their, maybe their favorite suit and a shirt and a tie to put on. They wanted to look nice. Well, all that's good, and I'm glad you did. I think we should wear the very best we have, whatever that might be, to the house of God. But there is an apparel even more important than that that we should always consider, and that's putting on the beautiful garments of salvation, the beautiful garments that God has blessed us with, in garments of praise, in garments of honor, in gar garments of worship and service in the house of God. And that's to be worn on a regular basis, you see. So... The Lord here 
uh, tells his children through Peter that he resists the proud, but he gives grace unto the humble. In Isaiah 57 15, it says, the Lord speaking here, the Lord says he will draw nigh to those who have a broken heart and a contrite spirit, that he might revive the spirit of the brokenhearted and also revive the spirit of the contrite ones. Now, we notice here, the Lord is near those of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. That's the only reason you'll ever see the importance of being humble. And the only way that you can be humble is when God has dealt with you to show you by nature that you're unworthy of his grace. By nature, you're unworthy of his blessings. By nature, apart from God, you're nothing, yea, less than nothing. Until the Lord shows you that, you think you're something. You think you, you're the hot thing. You think you're the, the top dog. You just, you just think a lot of yourself. You, pride is a real problem. Well, pride can also be a problem to the Lord's people after they're born of the Spirit of God, or this verse wouldn't be in here. When he says, clothe yourselves with humility, the opposite of that, again, is pride. Now, in the book of Esther, uh, Mordecai, you know, uh, had a gallows made for him by a man by the name of Haman. Haman was a proud man, but he could not stand the fact that Mordecai would not bow down to him when he came walking through the gate. And so through the advice of his wife and friends, he had a gallows built, and he was going to hang Mordecai on it. But he came in where the king was pondering one day what he was going to do to honor Mordecai as he had found out that he had revealed a plot of where two men were attempting to assassinate him and nothing had ever been done for him. So he's thinking about this, and this is the way pride works. I mean, you're not going to have a more classic example than this. Haman comes into the courtyard, and the king hears somebody. He says, well, who's in the courtyard? And they say, well, it's Haman. He says, well, bring him in. And he come in, and so he just says, Haman, uh, what do you think I ought to do to the man that the king would like to honor? And the Bible says, Haman thought within himself, well, surely he's talking about me. And so since he's talking about me, you know, he's saying this in his mind. He says to the king, well, I think you ought to put the king's crown on his head. I think you need to put the king's garment around his, his apparel around his shoulders. And then put him on the king's horse and then get a very honorable man to just take him and lead the horse and Mordecai right down, or he didn't say Mordecai, who was it? Right down Main Street. That's what you need to do to the man that you so want to honor. He says, I like that. He says, put Mordecai on my horse, put my crown on his head, my apparel around his shoulders, and I want you to lead him down Main Street. And you can't get a, <laughs> a clearer picture of pride than that one. He was eat up with it, wasn't he? I mean, he was afflicted with it. He had a bad case of it. <laughs> God resisted the proud, but he giveth grace unto the humble. Now, these two, once again, are opposites. They, they, they can't coexist, so to speak. You can't be proud and humble at the same time. There is a country song out a number of years ago that was very popular. It went something like, Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble. I don't know if the... <laughs> He realized what he was saying or not, but he was telling the truth. It is hard to be humble because you, it goes against the grain. It goes against your human nature that you possess that is one of pride, you see. Now, we're to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. We notice here 
it's the mighty hand of God that's under consideration. Not just the hand of God, but it's the, the mighty hand. What if it read like this, humble yourselves under the hand of God? That would have sounded okay, wouldn't it? I mean, I think we'd have got the point that we should humble ourselves under God's hand, but Peter says the hand that's under consideration is a, is a mighty hand, a powerful hand, an omnipotent hand. Therefore, humble yourselves, understand it, God resisted the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Just like James said, to resist the devil, you need to clothe yourself with humility. If you want to draw nigh to God, you need to put on the garments of humility. Therefore, humble yourselves, not just under the hand of God, but humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. When Israel came out of the land of Egypt, it was God who brought them out, of course. And it's pretty interesting that this event is so uh, important in the history of Israel that it's recorded in a number of books of the Bible, not just in the book of Exodus. You'll find it just scattered throughout the Old Testament. You can find it over here in the little book of Jude, right? It's the book of Revelation. But I count at least 14 times. Might be more. I might have missed one. If you want to check me up on it, you can do the same thing. You'll get a lot of good Bible reading in there. But I count at least 14 times when the writer was talking about this event that he says, and they were brought out of the land of Egypt by the mighty hand of God. Not just the hand of God, the mighty hand of God. Now the word mighty can be expressed in other ways as well. If you go back to Exodus chapter 13, you'll find where the Lord is telling Israel through Moses. He says, and they had now uh, been delivered out of Egypt. They have not yet crossed the Red Sea, but they've come out of Egypt. And he says, you are to set aside the firstborn of man and beast. Remember the last plague was the death of the firstborn. God struck dead the firstborn of all the Egyptians. Not a one was spared. At the same time, not a single firstborn of the Israelites perished. They were all delivered. So the Lord says, now the firstborn of man and beast, they belong to me. He says, so you're to do that. He says, you're to remember this day. Here's a day to remember. It was in the month Abib, which is corresponding to March slash April, when they came out of there. He says, and also, you're to eat unleavened bread for six days, and then on the seventh day, you're to have a feast, which is the feast of unleavened bread, which is the Passover. He says, you're to do this perpetually. Even after you're brought into the land of Canaan, you're to always do this. You're to always observe the Passover. And that's when at midnight, God passed over. God passed through the camps of Egypt and uh, where he saw the blood that was slain on the side post and lentil of the Israelites, he passed over. But where there was no blood, the firstborn was slain, you see. So here's the feast of the Passover. He said, because by strength of hand, this is used three times in Exodus chapter 13, and the expression strong hands used once. For by strength of hand, the Lord delivers you out of the land of Egypt. He wants them not to forget the fact it was by the strength of God's hand, the mighty hand of God, that they came out of the land of Egypt. He said, it'd be like a, a sign on your uh, finger and a memorial between your eyes. In other words, have you ever, uh, because you need to remember something really important and want to make sure you didn't forget, you may have done something to try to make you remember. I've known people to tie a string around the finger. So they tie a little string around the finger, so an hour or two later, look at the string, and what's that string for? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I put that around that to remind me 
of something. He, that's what he's saying right here. When you do this unleavened bread, it's like a string around your finger. It's like frontless between your eyes, okay? It's right there before you to see on a regular basis so you don't forget. You don't forget remembering how the Lord led you, you know, led you out of there. So he speaks about the strength of the Lord's hand and the strong hand of the Lord to go along with the expression, the mighty hand of God. Now again, that's used, the mighty hand of God, at least 14 times, I found, at least 14. It could be more, but I know at least 14 times. Now, you go to Joshua chapter 4, and you'll find where this chapter opens up with the Israelites crossing Jordan's River. Now, they've crossed Jordan's River, and if you read before that, you'll find when they first got to Jordan's River, it was flood stage, and they could not cross over. It was too deep, too much water. They couldn't pass over. So for three days, the Lord let them sit there and watch it. For three days, wondering how we're going to get across the other side. The Lord has told us that the other side's called the land of Cain, the promised land. He's given it to us, but how are we going to get across the other side? So they sat there three days. Well, the Lord tells them at the end of that three days what to do, and then line up in a certain way. And when the priest came, leading the way, he would touch the water with his feet. And when he touched the water with his foot, then that water separated. Two great walls of water, and they came across to the other side. Now, this is the second time God has parted water for them to leave one place into another, right? The Red Sea, Jordan's River. He says, you take 12 men. He says, you, those 12 men are to go back where the priest stood in the midst of the, you know, of the river. And you together, each man a stone, that's 12 men, 12 stones. And you're to bring them out of the river, and you take them to the place where you're going to camp out. And when your children ask you what mean these stones, now I think that's really important. The Lord wanted the children or the adults to know what those stones meant. When your children ask you what mean these stones, there's things in the church that children ought to be, and I think do ask their parents, you need to have the answer. Why is somebody baptized? Why do we use unleavened bread? Why do we use wine? Uh, what, mean, what means this, you know, what mean these stones? He says, then you'll tell them, this is the day that the Lord parted the waters, and they came across to the other side. He says, then I want you to go back down there and get 12 more stones and build up a memorial right in the bed of the river. There's two sets of stones here. 12 in the midst of the river and 12 on the other side. And he says, when your children ask you what mean these stones, you will tell them this is the way and the day that the Lord opened up the river and brought us across. Now God brought Israel out of Egypt to bring them into Canaan over here. To do that, he had to part two great bodies of water, the Red Sea and Jordan's River. Now, the last verse of Joshua 24 is what I'm getting to. In the last verse of Joshua chapter 4, you're going to find Joshua saying, These things were done that all the people of the earth might know of the mighty hand of God. Not just your children. Yes, they should know. And you should know because you experienced it. 
and this will be told over and over and over and over again from one generation to another. These were two very important historical events that took place in the history of Israel. It was in Egypt that they were formed into a nation. When God brought them out of Egyptian bondage and slavery, it was like their birth date, so to speak. That's when they became actually a nation of people right there, as God formed them and created them. And by all estimates, they were about two million strong. When they went down in there, they were less than 100. I mean, less than 100 to approximately two million people. But they were slaves. They were servants down the land of Egypt. How could they get out of there? They didn't have a, a, a normal, literal army. They didn't have weapons. They didn't have a, a, a warfare, etc. How are they going to come out of the land of Egypt at the time that God said they were going to come out? Because God is going to deal with the Egyptians. And you know what he tells Pharaoh? He says, Pharaoh, why, has you, why have you not humbled yourself and let my people go? If Pharaoh had humbled himself before God, the mighty hand of God, he wouldn't experience the heavy hand of God. If he had humbled himself under the mighty hand of God, he wouldn't have lost his army in the Red Sea. But his soldiers and their chariots and their horses are all going to be drowned in the Red Sea when they try to follow Israel across the Red Sea to the other side. And God's going to bring those two great walls of water right back down on top of them. See, Pharaoh did not humble himself. You find Israel did not humble themselves. After God did all these miraculous things for them, you come over here to Deuteronomy chapter 8, and you'll find where Moses tells the Israelites in verse 3, he says, Remember how the Lord hath led you through the wilderness into the land of Canaan, and how your shoes didn't wear out, and how your clothes didn't wear out, and how uh, when uh, you had nothing to drink, God brought water out of a rock. He set you down manna from on high. You remember this day when the Lord humbled you. You know why they spent 40 years in the wilderness? Because they didn't humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. Those 10 spies had more influence than the two. Remember, 12 spies went over there and they came back. And the 10 spies said, we saw giants in the land. We saw great walls, uh, uh, great wall cities over there in that land. In other words, they came back with a very fearful heart. They were frightened. They were scared. They didn't believe they could take the land, even though God had promised them the land. They'd seen the ten plagues for, uh, you know, just a short time before that. They'd seen how God opened up the Red Sea and brought them all across dry shy without the loss of one. And you know, in the Psalms it says when they came across, there was no feeble person. Now you tell me how that's the case. You got two million people strong, various generations, and nobody feeble. You know, apart from God, there had to be some feeble folks. <laughs> but by God's power, there were none feeble. They all made the cross. I don't believe there's any crutches or wheelchairs or anything else going across that Red Sea. They just all walked straight across to the other side. But they didn't humble themselves. And therefore, God humbled them and proved them in that wilderness journey of 40 years. In the book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 7, verse 14, is a very familiar verse uh, out here in the Christian world. It's used quite often. Um, here he says, If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. 
Now, this is God speaking to Israel. But I do believe today that the Lord's people in America, now you can't expect the wicked and the evil to do this, but you can't expect the Lord's family to do it. If my people, which are called by my name, they have identity with Christ, identity with God. If my people are called by my name, will humble themselves. That's the first of four steps. Starts off with humility. Will humble themselves. What's step two? And pray. Step three, seek my face. Step four, turn from their wicked way. We got some wicked ways in America that we need to turn from. The wicked ways of abortion, the wicked ways of immorality, ungodly living. Wouldn't you know that one of the most ungodliest things going on in America today it goes under the banner of pride? They're proud. <laughs> They're proud of their lifestyle. They're proud of their behavior. They're proud of their activities. And they want everybody to know about it. And then they choose a biblical emblem of what? The rainbow that God put into heavens when he destroyed this earth by a flood because of wickedness and ungodliness. And they choose a rainbow to symbolize their cause. I'm telling you, I don't know how the Lord has not done sent lightning bolts down here by the boatload. But anyway, we find that God resisted the proud and gives grace to the humble. God had to humble those Israelites. If my people, which call by my name, will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, and I will heal their land. That's God speaking to Israel, but I believe if we do the same thing today, I have no doubt that we'd have a healing in our land. Now, I want to go back just for a moment to Joshua 4.24. Joshua reminds them about their Red Sea experience. He reminds them about that. Forty years prior to that, they had a Red Sea experience when God parted the great walls of the Red Sea and brought them all across dry shod. And then when the Egyptian army tried to follow suit behind them, he allowed those two great walls of water to come back down and drown every horse and every chariot that tried to follow them. And that's when he said unto them, Look, and you shall see your enemies no more ever forever. And they didn't. He said, that happened, and the opening up of the Jordan River for you to cross into Canaan's land happened, the way it happened, that all the people of the earth may know the mighty hand of God. Do you think it's a good idea to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God? In the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, uh, uh, this is kind of where the book of Isaiah is divided. Isaiah has 66 chapters in it, and the book, Bible has 66 books. And there's 39 in the Old and 27 in the New. When you read the book of Isaiah, it's pretty interesting how it's divided between 39 and 40. If you study the first 39, it'll correlate far more to the Old Testament and 40 on to the New. And it starts off like this. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. Now, the comforting message is to God's people. It's not comforting to the wicked or the evil. They don't think anything about it. It's just foolish to them. But comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, thus saith the Lord. Declare unto Jerusalem. Notice this declaration is not to everybody. It's to Jerusalem, specifically. Declare in Jerusalem that her warfare is accomplished. It means the war is over with. Her iniquities have been pardoned. 
and she's received of the Lord's hand, this is the part I wanted, the Lord's hand, double for all of her sins. Notice three things. The warfare is accomplished. The war is over. That's always good news. In this case, it's extra good news. Because the warfare under consideration was the one that Jesus fought against the devil, against sin, against death, against the grave. And the last time I checked, he's on the right hand of God, victorious of all of them. He says, your iniquities have been pardoned. And you've received to the Lord's hand. Not your hand, your Lord's hand. You said the Lord's hand double for all of your sins. Not only have you obtained eternal redemption through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, but you also have forgiveness. God has forgiven you for your sins through the blood of Jesus. Legally speaking, and then experientially speaking, brother, in 1 John chapter 1, he says, if any man confess his sins to the Lord, the Lord is just and righteous to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He wouldn't do that if the blood of Jesus Christ hadn't already put away your sins as far as the east is from the west. Amen. The mighty hand of God. You see to the Lord's hand. In John chapter 10, the Lord Jesus Christ addresses some Jews and he tells them in verses 26 and 7, he says, um, you're not my sheep. All right? You believe not. You believe not because. Here's a because. You're not my sheep because. Uh, you believe not uh, because you're not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. And no man can pluck them out of my hand. If they can't pluck them out of the hand of Christ, I kind of think that's a mighty hand. No man can pluck them out of my hand. And my Father which gave them me, he gave you, the sheep, my friends, to me. No man can pluck them out of my Father's hand. I am the Father of one. And when I was thinking about this, just there so ago, uh, it came to me, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. You know, the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross, and the one that came to me was this. When the Lord Jesus Christ addressed God as the Father, he says, Father, I commend my spirit into thy hands. Now, you know, tell me how many times I've read that. Tell me how many times I've quoted that. But it just didn't hit me the same. You know, it's the Father's hands. Jesus had confidence in the Father's hands, in other words. And he was willing to commend his spirit on that cross when he breathed out his last breath into the hands of his heavenly Father. No man can pluck him out of my hand. My Father's gave them me. He's greater than all. No man can pluck him out of my Father's hand. For I am the Father of one. That's the very same hands that the Lord Jesus Christ commended his spirit when he gave up the ghost. When he bowed his head and gave up the ghost, my friends, his spirit went right straight into glory into the hands of his heavenly Father. I think of the mighty hand of God. I think about the healing hands of God. Oh, how many examples could be given about this? But let's just look at this one in Matthew chapter 9. When the Lord Jesus Christ had been called to the home of a man by the name of Jairus, and he's got a 12-year-old daughter, and she was nigh to death. Before the Lord gets there, she breathes out her last breath, and she has passed this scene of life. But the Lord tells them, Behold, she sleepeth. She's not dead. She sleepeth. 
Well, they knew that she wasn't breathing. They knew she was dead. But as far as Christ was concerned, she was just in a deep sleep. And the Bible says that the Lord went and he took her by the hand. And he said unto her, Damsel, arise. And she arose. The miraculous healing hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wonder what that Lord's hand felt like to the Apostle Peter in Matthew 14 in that storm. When the Lord has been in a, on, over here in a mountain all night praying for them, and they're in that ship, and they're in a great storm on the sea, and the Lord Jesus Christ comes walking upon the water. And the apostle Peter speaks and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come. He says, come. <laughs> you know, no matter what the waves are doing, no matter how ferocious are the winds, no matter how large the waves are, if Jesus says, come, my advice to you is just to come. <laughs> you, you'll be all right. He'll give you the power, my friends, to overcome. He says, come. And we find where the, uh, the apostle Peter got out of the ship and he started walking on the water toward the Lord and Jesus Christ. <laughs> Don't tell me men can't walk on water. Peter did. <laughs> Jesus did. Peter did. And then Peter took his eyes off the Lord. All oh, the weakness of men. How many times have you taken your eyes off the Lord? Right when you was walking on the water <laughs> and you were being victorious over the obstacles in your life and you took your eyes off the Savior. What happens? He began to sink into the water. And the Bible says Jesus took him by the hand. He said, Lord, save me. And Jesus took him by the hand. Took him by the hand. And the next thing we read is he and Peter are both in the ship. See, I love those hands of the Lord, don't you? I love those good hands that Ezra and Nehemiah spoke, spoke about. When they were in captivity, they had to go before the, uh, the king of, of Persia at that time and try to get some you know, leave of absence of permission to be able to go back to Jerusalem, rebuild the gates, rebuild the walls of that city. How are they going to do that? We find they got leave. The king gave them permission. But I want you to notice both Ezra and Nehemiah said, it was by the good hand of the Lord upon me. I, that, that expression, good hand of the Lord. In the Lord's hand, good. His healing hand is good. His secure hand is good. His hands of blessing, they're good. When you look at Luke chapter 24, the last verse, you'll find the Lord Jesus Christ leaving this earth and going into heaven. He ascends into glory. But it says he was with his disciples. It says he lifted up his hands and blessed them. These are blessing hands or hands of blessing. There was the good hands Ezra was talking about. Nehemiah was talking about, you see. The good hand of the Lord was upon them. And they got that leave of absence. They got that freedom and that liberty to leave where they were at and travel several hundred miles to the city of Jerusalem. And then under the direction and protection of Almighty God and His good hand upon them, they rebuilt, rebuilt the temple and rebuilt the wall that went around the city. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Not just the hand, the mighty hand of God. The hand that Isaiah speaks about in Isaiah chapter 40 when he says he holds the waters in the hollow of his hand. I'm telling you, that's a lot of weight. <laughs> That's a great deal of quantity and weight in it. But it says the Lord holds the waters in the hollow of his hand. That takes a mighty hand to be able to do that, does it not? 
Can you imagine all the water of all the oceans and the rivers and the lakes and the streams and the tributaries and everything else, brother? He says, all the waters are in the hollow of the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ, the hand of creation. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Every time I look at God's hand, I can't come away without, any, without thinking, that's a pretty big hand. That's a strong hand. That's a mighty hand. So that encourages me. Be clothed with humility. That encourages me to humble myself under the mighty hand of God. Now, let's look at the greatest example of that you'll find in Scripture. If you go to Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, he said, Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation. That speaks of humility there, doesn't it? He made himself of no reputation. He didn't come to, for people to praise, praise him in a carnal way. Oh, he deserves praise, but not in a carnal manner, in a carnal way. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ. Here's the mind of Christ. We need to have the same mind. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, because he was God. But made himself of no reputation. But he took upon himself the form of a servant, don't you see Christ in his humility in John chapter 13 when he washed the disciples' feet? He made himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself unto death, even the death of the cross. That's what humility is. It's obedience to the Father. It's doing the Father's will. He humbled himself unto death, even the death of the cross. And God had given him a name which is above every name. And it highly exalted him. Now what's our text say? Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and in due time he shall exalt you. In due time he exalted his son. When his son became, humbled himself unto death, even the death of the cross, after three days and three nights, he arose from the grave. And then 40 days later, that by many infallible proofs, it could be not be denied that he was the Christ, the Son of God. What happened? Jesus left this world and he went into a place called heaven. And what did he do then? He sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Highly exalted. Acts 2.33 he says, and him hath God exalted by his right hand. That's a pretty good verse, Acts 2.33. About seven or eight times we're told that Christ went back and he said on the right hand of God. Let's look at three of them in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 1.3. Who being the brightness of his glory and express image of his person. And upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged us from our sins, sat down on the right hand of God. Now, I want you to encourage you when you read these different expressions about on the right hand of God, each one of them is telling you something important and something different. But they all tie together. What, what's important about this one? When he had therefore by himself purged you from your sins, you've been purged from your sins. 
in Christ, when he purged you, he sat down on the right hand of God, signifying the work's over, the work's done. Hebrews 10, 12, And this man, by one offering and sacrifice, he hath forever put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and is set down on the right hand of God. Your sins and, sins and iniquities were put away by one offering, one sacrifice by Christ, and when he did that, he sat down the right hand of God. Hebrews 12, 2. Paul says, Seeing we are compassed with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and these sin that doth so easily beset us, looking unto Jesus Christ, the author and finish of our faith, for the joy that was set before him. What an important phrase this is. For the joy that was set before him. Jesus knew before he left heaven he'd be spit on. He knew before he left heaven he'd be buffeted. He knew before he left heaven he'd be scourged. He knew before he left heaven he'd be ridiculed, criticized. He knew he'd have thorns pressed down upon his brow before he left heaven. What kind of joy is that? What kind of happiness is that, knowing that's the kind of life that you're going to experience? Because all that was necessary to bring his family home. That was all necessary to bring his family home. That was a joy that was set before him, to bring the family home. <laughs> I'm telling you, my friends, you're just as good at <laughs> You're just as good at home right now as you are when it's going to happen. I mean, you're not there yet, but you're going to be. I'm telling you, it's a sure thing. It's a sure deal. But for the joy that was set before him and bringing his family home to bring his bride across the, uh, the threshold into glory. For the joy that was set before him, he despised the shame. He endured the cross and is set down on the right hand of the throne of God. Romans 8, 34, Paul asked the question, Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather is risen again. Who's on the right hand of God. Make an intercession for us. Three things here. Died for us, rose for us, Make an intercession for us. So don't try to charge one of God's people. You can't do it. Don't try to condemn one of God's little children. You can't do it. That condemnation's been removed through the death of Jesus, through the resurrection of the Savior. He's on the right hand of God, making intercession for the saints of God. My final example this morning, we found it in the book of Acts chapter 7. A man by the name of Stephen has given a great historical declaration of truth concerning God and the nation of Israel. I mean, he sums up everything you read in the first five books of the Old Testament in one chapter. And he brings them all the way to the crucifixion of the Son of God. And when he starts talking about the crucifixion of the blessed Savior, the Bible says they were cut to the heart. And they picked up stones to stone him. And they stoned him to death. But before he died, he looked up and he saw heaven open. And he saw two things. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God.
welcomed him home. His life ended here. Jesus, arms wide, and welcomed him home. May we be clothed with humility. Knowing that God resisted the proud, but gave the grace to the humble. May we draw nigh to God. May we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And in due time, he will exalt us. He will do that experientially. But the day is coming when he will exalt you, all his family, and bring you home to glory, to be on his right hand just like he did his son nearly 2,000 years ago.